0: Good morning, everybody. Just a few show notes before we uh, turn to my conversation with Ken Krantz. First and foremost, I wanted to let you know that uh, we went over 14,000 downloads this week, which blows my mind. I never saw it going like this, but I appreciate everyone's um, listenership and uh, making this the success that it has. I get comments all the time about how it's helpful and in, in passing the information on to, to judge advocates. Just came off six weeks of travel. And so that meant I had to put a lot of these together, put four together when I was over in Europe, and then I had to have two together for when I was in Asia. And what that means is I'm now out of guests. I have one more conversation, which I recorded yesterday for next week. So again, always soliciting guests who are willing to come on and talk about their experiences and share information. I get asked about what the future of this podcast is going to be. I'm Less than a hundred days from my ceremony, and somewhere around there, I will be starting work. Hopefully, knock on wood. I'd like to think that I could continue this, but it's it's a lot of uh, work on the production effort, and so I've been hesitant to make this a subscription. I think this information should be free, but at some point, I would like to move towards uh, having someone do the production work on this, and so. Ideally, I would like to to get some advertisers out there. So, what would really be helpful is for you guys to go onto Spotify or Apple Podcasts and give some ratings for my podcast. That would possibly help me get some some sponsorship and uh, keep this content free for all of you. And towards that end. I'll probably be recording a message for Spotify for podcasters, which is the platform I use for this podcast and inserting a commercial into the podcast, which will bring up a little bit of revenue stream. So again, plan is to keep it free and hopefully get some commercial sponsorship. And so you going onto Apple podcasts or Spotify and rating this podcast would be very, very helpful towards that end. So anyway, sit back, relax, Enjoy my conversation with Judge Ken Krantz. Today on the podcast, I'm talking to retired Commander Ken Krantz. Now, Ken retired from the Navy back in 1999, and he had the mispleasure of being one of the judges whom I appeared for. And the other thing that I think I want to bring up about Ken before I introduce him and have him talk about himself is he, for years, was an opera singer, still is, 45 years it looks like. And his chambers was adjacent to the court. And when he would go back to deliberate, you would often hear opera music coming from his chambers. And, Ken, one story goes that a sailor was in front of you and they argued on sentencing. And you said, all right, I'm going to take the matter under advisement. You went back to your chambers and some foreboding music started playing, at which time the defense counsel turned to his client and said, Doesn't sound good for you, my friend. When he plays that music, means you're going away for a long time. (laughs) So I don't know if you've ever heard that story or if there's any truth to it.
1: I have not heard that story and I don't believe there's any truth to it.
0: Well, Ken, this is great. I haven't seen you, gosh. And I left the NILSO in 95. So probably 20, almost 28 years that we uh, have not seen each other interacted. So it's good to see you.
1: And we both still look pretty good.
0: I think so, but I will tell you when it comes to myself, my standards can consistently slip the older I get. So, Ken, you did uh, 22 years in the JAG Corps. Kind of give us an overview of what your career was like when you came in and what you did.
1: Okay, well, I came in, uh, went to NLSO Norfolk, the Naval Legal Service Office there, bounced around there for four years, including claims, prosecution, defense, was officer in charge at the Oceania Detachment, and... One thing I did when I was there, I was in a pilot program to send a JAG on board, destroyer tenders in the med. I was the second person sent out on that program. The idea was to provide services to the ships that would be alongside the tender, just as we have medical officers and dental officers and, of course, lots of repair technicians on a destroyer tender. They figured, do legal assistance, that sort of thing for the tended ships alongside. So that got me the idea that sea duty might be sort of fun. So I volunteered for a carrier and was transferred to USS Constellation, one of the last of the oil-burning carriers out of San Diego. So I went across country, and uh, we deployed to the Indian Ocean. That was after the Iran hostage crisis and before the Iran-Iraq war became a naval war. That was They were still killing each other on land before they started shooting at oil tankers later in the war. So that was kind of an interesting time to be in the I.O. Came back, and they sent me to grad school in criminal law at George Washington University, I like to think they got their money's worth out of that because the remaining 15 years I spent on active duty, I was nine years a judge, three years a staff officer at the criminal law division at Office of Judge Advocate General, and three years I was at back at NLSO Norfolk as Senior Trial Counsel and Head of Command Services. So I was pretty much military justice the entire later part of my career. Then, as I was drawing close to retirement, I uh, realized there was this thing called an administrative law judge. One of the courses at my law school was a required course was administrative law, so I had read these cases from the 1930s about licensing radio stations and stuff like that so i was vaguely aware that there was such creature then i filed that away didn't think about it for another 20 plus years until i noticed that some of my friends and colleagues from the judiciary were getting hired as administrative law judges and i like judging i did it a total of nine years in the navy thought i was pretty good at it so i applied and got on what they called the register which is a roster of people who have passed the various test procedures they had in place Once I got on the roster, it was about time to retire, and then the hiring process got shut down by a stay issued by the Merit Systems Protection Board. There was a class action lawsuit against the procedure that OPM used to score the exam. So I figured, well, my retirement's in. At that point, I decided I'd take a gap year, figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up. So there was no ALJ hiring when I retired from the Navy. But uh, I had been in Jacksonville for my last tour. My family was still back at our home in Virginia Beach. So I got to be a stay-at-home dad, worked a lot of things, did some opera singing, did some acting, got my tour guide license in D.C. So I would do in the spring season, I led student travel tours, the eighth grade tour of Washington that you see kids doing, substitute teaching. And I I would drop the occasional resume here and there, but I still had my eye on ALJ as an ultimate goal. Then got hired by LexisNexis as an editor. Again, that was home-based work, so I could be a stay-at-home dad then. After about a year of that, they reopened the ALJ hiring process. Social Security, which hires then and now maybe 75 or 80% of federal ALJs, they were hurting because they couldn't hire anybody for two years. So they're not getting any in at the bottom, and they're losing some at the top between death, retirement, and other agencies hiring them. As long as Social Security is there, other agencies can pretty much higher from Social Security, which is how I ended up leaving Social Security. So I got hired to go into Social Security, and my first job assignment was in Savannah, Georgia. Once again, I was a geographic bachelor, so I was looking for a way to get home. Got a transfer to Dover, Delaware, then got a transfer to Washington, D.C. with the Federal Maritime Commission, which is a small regulatory agency, and then there was an opening with DOL, Federal Department of Labor in Newport News. So that's what got me back to the Tidewater area.
0: How long of a time period was that between the time you started as an allj in savannah georgia until you were able to work your way back home to newport news virginia
1: just under five years three years at savannah which is a beautiful city it was a lot of fun but you know it's family separation and then dover delaware meant being able to drive home every weekend instead of flying home every other weekend and of course washington dc was closer still and that was an interesting year and a half I spent with the Federal Maritime Commission, because that's very different than doing disability hearings for Social Security. That's a regulatory agency. And so that was an interesting work. And then DOL was my home for the rest of my career until I retired from civil service.
0: And I want to back up to the ALLJ examination. What does that consist of and how do you prepare for that?
1: Okay, well, I'm an expert in how to get on the register in the year 1998. Now, not so much. If anybody in the sound of my voice, anybody hearing this podcast has more recent information, please get in touch with Tom, because uh, it would be useful to have. But back in the day, gee, Grandpa, tell us about the olden days. That's right, Sonny. Back in my day, we used floppy disks, and we didn't have these interwebs with snapgrams and instant chats. We used dot matrix printers. By golly, so yeah. So back in the day, it consisted of a Formatted resume, which was nowadays had to be read by computers. It was then read by personnel specialists, and they would score it in a very objective sort of way. You had to use buzzwords, sort of like it is now. I think with computerized resume review, there was a written exam, which is think of the worst bar exam essay question you ever had, and triple it. It was like five hours with a lunch break to answer this one question. An interview and review of you—you had to submit as part of your package names of cases that you had tried with the opposing counsel, or in my case, since I was a judge, the counsel for both sides, and then they would contact them. So be careful who you tick off in this business. As they say, be careful who you run into on the way up, because you might meet them on the way back down. That was the format then, and then you would get a score assigned, and they would add veterans preference scores if you were eligible. I was not eligible, because I was on active duty, and by definition, not a veteran. Veterans preference, it does exist on, and I believe it still does from what I've, the research I've done into the current process now. So that was how it was done. And then the agency would hire you through their internal processes. They would ask OPM for a list of eligible people in whatever geographic region they were interested in, which for regulatory agencies tends to be just DC for social security, it's the whole country.
0: What was a day in the life of a social security ALLJ like? What were you determining, and how burdensome or how heavy was your caseload?
1: The caseload was heavy, and I think it's gotten heavier since. Virtually all the cases, with very rare exceptions, were disability determination. Somebody has applied for disability benefits. Somebody short of retirement age wants to get on the disability benefit, and they have been turned down by a, an agency of the state, which does the initial determination. It's, a, it's a, an odd sort of hybrid federal-state process. It's a federal program, but states have a role in, in Initial determination. I would schedule sixty hearings a month, typically six a day for ten days. So that's roughly half of the month, and then the rest of the time is spent reviewing records because uh, the body of evidence you would admit is the claimant's entire health record. So some of them were enormous, and the end product of the hearing is not what we're used to in the military—announcing a verdict in open court. It's a written decision that you do in the days and weeks afterwards. I found that sort of nice. When I was a military judge, I'd have to announce a verdict, sentence a guy with his crying mother there and wife or girlfriend getting upset and him getting upset about hearing how long he's going to go to jail. I sort of found it a nice break from that to just send send it out in the mail. So day in the life is reviewing a lot of medical records if you're not in court and sitting in court and questioning people if you are. Now, social security hearings are private. They're not open to the public and they're non-adversarial. There's nobody representing the agency there. So there's a claimant and typically Most cases we had, there would be an attorney. You see their ads on TV, people, social security benefits, lawyers. Many of them are very good at what they do. I found it helpful to have an attorney, but it's very different from from any form of litigation, certainly different from a military trial. That was how I would spend my days. We did a lot of traveling out of the Savannah office. As a geographic bachelor i would volunteer to take more than my share of travel because might as well be alone on per diem as alone in my apartment in savannah the travel burden i think has been reduced since then they were just starting to get into video hearings when i was leaving and i think they do a lot more of that now so the travel burden i was we were driving all over south georgia when i was there and when i was in dover we would go to salisbury maryland a lot but i think that that has changed with the advent of video on a wide basis
0: Do you roughly have an idea of how many Social Security LJs there are and where they're located?
1: I looked it up the other day. As a year or two ago, I found an online stat that said there were, I think there were 1,800 in Social Security, which is not quite double what it was. It was a little over 1,000 when I was there. And then there's maybe 200, 200 to 300 in the rest of the federal government. That's over like 30 agencies. The second largest is the is the HHS's Office of Medicare Hearings and Appeals. They've got around 100. My old Stomping Grounds DOL has about 40, and most of the others are a dozen or fewer. Most agencies are in single digits in their staffing for ALJs. Most people who get hired by Social Security will be there their whole careers, and that's kind of an adjustment. Anybody who's a career JAG officer has spent their entire career qualifying for and being moved into positions of greater and greater responsibility and authority. We're all used to that. Kiss that goodbye if you go with Social Security. You'll be doing the same job on your last day that you do on your first, unless you become a management judge. You can become chief judge of your office or of a region or of the whole system, and then you have management responsibilities. Another thing about Social Security is you don't supervise anybody. At least you didn't then. I doubt that's changed, unless you're the chief judge of your office. I think that's one thing that has stood us military types in good stead as we go into Social Security, because... Some of the other demographics that get hired are people like state court judges who have qualified for retirement under their system in the state courts and are looking for something else to do, or litigators. The the agencies that hire judges, they want litigation experience. They like judging experience when they can get it, but they insist on litigation experience of some type. If you're a hotshot partner in a law firm or if you're a state court judge, you're used to having things your way a certain way. You have staff that you supervise. You may have hired them. You can fire them. You don't have that degree of authority over over the staff of the office as a Social Security judge. And sometimes, if you go to some little town in South Georgia, maybe the only hotel in town that will take the government rate is a really crummy hotel. Now, the military person looks at that and says, "Well, this is better than some Air Force excuse me, this is better than most BOQs I stayed in, at least the non Air Force BOQs because those are pretty sweet." But the military person is used to getting the job done with suboptimal administrative support in some cases. So I think we're well equipped as a group, not that civilian folks aren't. I've known some really fine former civilian lawyer ALJs, but I think military judges are in good shape. I think there's a reason that that sort of behavior is called soldiering on.
0: Yeah. I, I was going to say, when you were talking about that, it sounded like when I came in the nineties, when we were serving together, it was during one of the the drawdown periods and you were doing it all. You were doing copying, you were doing... Uh, printing, you were making binders, you were doing it all yourself. And that's, you get into that habit, it's sort of hard to shake when you do get people to supervise. So as you were talking about all that, uh, the lack of support as a as a Social Security ALJ, I thought, wow, it sounds like my time in a JAG Corps. So you were there for how long before you moved over to the Maritime Administration?
1: About three and a half years, three years in uh, Savannah, and then almost a year in Dover.
0: Now, what was the impetus to jump ship, if you will, and move over to the Maritime Agency?
1: Well, a couple things. After about 2,000 dispositions in the course of three-plus years, I, there was a certain sameness to Social Security, but I was still looking to get closer to home, and I thought that uh, the work would be interesting, which it was, and I, I thought I might provide an opening to make connections with agencies that might give me an opportunity to move closer to home, which it did.
0: And how big was the Maritime Agency and what, what was the, the type of work you were doing there?
1: That's a very small agency. It occupies like two floors of an office building near Union Station in D.C. And there's there were maybe 120, 150 people entirely. I was the only ALJ when I was there. The guy who had wanted to transfer to the West Coast hired me as his replacement, So that was a one-judge shop. I think they've expanded to two since I left.
0: And what kind of cases were you adjudicating there?
1: Well, things that might have been civil cases if they didn't involve the maritime industry, like I had a big landlord-tenant case involving warehousing at a marine terminal facility. That was one of my bigger cases there. Oddball sort of cases in the maritime industry. It used to be, before deregulation in the 70s and 80s, I was told that that agency had a much bigger ALJ program because they had regulatory authority over rate changes in the industry. So if one company wants to change their rate for carrying some commodity and their competitors complain about it, that's an ALJ
0: hearing. And so then the uh, the opportunity opens up to go over to the Department of Labor and you seem to indicate that was a better opportunity to get back to the Hampton Roads area, which is where your family continue to maintain its abode. And and how long were you with DOL?
1: There a total of nine years think of that as any three of my Navy tours put together. Uh, so I was there quite a while. It was a great office. I really enjoyed that time there.
0: What was the nature of the work that you did and how heavy was the caseload there?
1: Caseload there was, it was heavy. The cases, there, were, there was more variety of the cases than it's Social Security. Our bread and butter cases were Longshore and Harbor Workers Compensation Act. Uh, most workers' comp, of course, is run by the states. There are a couple statutes where federal agencies, where the feds have authority over workers' comp, and those are fall under DOL. So the reason we were in Newport News is because of all the shipbuilding and maritime work there. Uh, we, we covered the South Atlantic region, so we would go to Charleston, Savannah, and Florida Atlantic ports now and then. That was our big area of, of practice. Our second biggest area of, as an agency was black lung. We had offices in Cincinnati and Pittsburgh that did most of that, but we would spend about one week a month in Appalachian coal country doing black lung hearings. Then there's a wide variety of cases. There's a number of Private sector whistleblower statutes that had where the jurisdiction lies with the DOL. One thing we didn't do is labor law is conventionally understood, grievances and union grievances and that sort of thing. That's done by our counterparts at the NLRB, National Labor Relations Board. But there were wage and hour disputes, there were some immigration disputes. Green card applications, that sort of thing, that fell within our jurisdiction. Somebody once went through and found like 80 statutes that, had, that gave somebody a right to a DOL hearing. In a busy career, you might there were maybe five or six that you would do commonly, and you might do as many as 20 in, a, in an unusually long career. So nobody researched all of the statutes. Any oddball statute you might pick up, you would research it on the fly once you got the case. A bewildering variety of cases which kept it interesting for nine years.
0: How large or lack thereof was the military, former military JAG presence in the ALJ arena during your time?
1: Well, in DOL, there were, I know, half a dozen of us, at least I can think of. In, there were several of us in my entering class. One of them was still on active duty. He was he had enough terminal leave on the books that he gave his wife a power of attorney for the household goods move, got his got his physical to retire. And then, so he was on terminal leave for most of the time. One of our running gags during social security, a school, the four week course we had was every Friday. We'd tell him to stand for personnel inspection before he'd go on Liberty. We'd (laughs) talk about his shoe shine or his haircut. That was our running gag every week.
0: Were most of them former judges or were they a mixed bag?
1: I think most of them were former judges. I think if you like judging, that's one thing about the military. You don't become a judge as the capstone of your career. You rotate in and out of it, so you get a chance to decide if you like it or not. If you like judging, you're probably going to like being an ALJ, and if you do- didn't like it in the military, you probably won't like it an ALJ. But hey, there's hey, plenty of civilian litigators with no judging experience who right. find ALJs.
0: I was going to ask you, when you were on active duty, you hear the, uh, the caseload difference between now and then. How many cases, roughly, do you recall handling as a military judge during your career?
1: I think... In nine years, I think I think I did maybe seven hundred.
0: And you know, because I people say that the the caseload now is considerably lot less. That you know, you have more challenging crimes, uh, possession of child pornography, and those kinds of things. And so it's more it's more uh, technically challenging, but at the same time, most of the other offenses, uh, like we were talking about theft and UAs, for example, are they tend to administratively just process them now because they don't want to get for whatever reason they don't want to go through the hassle. It's just cleaner and easier to get them off the books that way, so forth and so on. So you you had a relatively uh, pretty solid track record as a judge to take with you as you went into the ALJ arena.
1: Yeah, yeah. The the requirement to get on the register in when I was doing it was. Uh, seven years either judging or litigation experience and I applied at the point at which I had my seven years. I could have qualified the litigation experience from my time as a prosecutor, defense counsel, of course, but I figured seven years as a judge was a nice little sort of sound bite bumper sticker to put on my resume. And so that's when I timed the uh, my application. And my first judge tour, I was in D.C. before I went to Norfolk, before I was at Office of Judge Advocate General in the Criminal Law Division, my, right out of grad school, as a junior lieutenant commander, I was a judge in DC. That was an interesting time because that was, got there in 84. So we were implementing the new new 84 manual. Another thing grandpa can tell you about the olden days is what a pain in the neck it was to litigate anything under the 69 manual. The 84 (laughs) manual revolutionized things in ways that you youngsters really can't, can barely comprehend.
0: I was going to say, you know, there's probably, I know there's some active duty lawyers that listening to this, they're probably saying, 84 69 why is he giving me a history lesson that's ages ago it was yeah (laughs) you know those kids don't even know what it was like if you remember the big binders that you got and then when you had the changes you had to either cut and paste or literally cut and paste not computer to cut and paste and and insert it in your manual now they just the the young whippersnappers today they just get a new manual it's just one one document that can fit in a briefcase when you go on on the road so you, you're uh, you're talking a foreign tongue there, Grandpa. That's
1: right. Yeah, that's right, Sonny.
0: <laughs> so what have you learned that has changed since the time you went through the ALJ until now? I know you say, look, I'm not an expert, but you, you did a little bit of research into it.
1: Yeah, there was a Supreme Court case in 2018 called Lucia v. Securities Exchange Commission. I'm not going to give you this site. I'm retired. I don't do sites and I don't shepherdize, but... <laughs> Uh, so it's it's there. You can Google it. You can Google it on your interweb machine that dealt with the appointments clause as it affected ALJs. Now, when I was a military judge in the 90s, we dealt with the appointments clause. So I'm one of the generation that had to deal with, think about the appointments clause two times in their careers, which is two more than most lawyers ever do. I don't know if you were aware of it in the, when you were a young lieutenant in the 90s. But there was this these cases going up on whether military judges had to be appointed under the constitutional appointment clause. Which is to say, by either the president, the courts, or by head of a department. And of course, we were not appointed by the department of, by the SecDef. Uh, we were appointed by typically the, by the Judge Advocate General of our service. That case was resolved. I won't go into detail about that, but that covered everybody except the civilian appellate judges in the Coast Guard court. So they had to be reappointed, and some of their cases had to be reheard on appeal. So that was the appointments clause the cases that we thought about and dealt with. And, worried a bit about when it was pending before the Supreme Court. 2018, you get this same issue with regard to ALJs. I won't go into too much detail. Anybody who's interested can read the case, but the upshot was that ALJs had to be appointed by the head of the department or the agency, if it's an administrative agency. In light of that, President Trump issued an executive order. Executive order 13843, that's the as much... Citation as I'm going to do, and I'm not going to shepherdize it. You can do that on your own if you like. The uh, appointment process, and there's an if you are interested in applying to be an ALJ, the thing to do is just Google OPM ALJ fact sheet. That has a fact sheet with links to these, and OPM is no longer running the hiring process as they did when I got on it. That's what I said. I'm an expert in how to do it in 1998, now, not so much. The upshot is that because each agency has to have the head of the agency or the head of the department do the hiring, they're doing their own hiring. The, the executive order that President Trump issued is still in force. It involves transferring ALJs from the accepted service. Excuse, I can never get this straight. From the classified service to the accepted service. Anyway, it's uh, civil service gobbledygook. But uh, the upshot is each agency runs its own hiring process now. In the old days... OPM did the administered this bear of a written exam and the and the interview process and they scored your resume and then they would that they would give you a score that would give you a score which would then um, determine who they whose names they would give to an agency seeking to hire so that's okay. all gone the agencies do their own hiring process so if you on USA Jobs, instead of one announcement from OPM for ALJ hiring, every, any agency that wants to hire will have their own announcement. So if you're programming op- the USA Jobs site to let you know of, of openings, then that's how you got to program that.
0: What, what would you say to someone who is thinking about uh, becoming an ALJ? Because I mean, I know, I know folks who have moved on to DOD to be, you know, for security clearances, I know folks that have done immigration, I think social security. So it seems to be a common alternative for folks leaving the service, but what did you most enjoy about it?
1: I most enjoyed just the presiding over hearings, knowing that you're making a difference in people's lives, of course. I think the the judicial role just really appeals to me. I've, I've learned in that first tour as a junior lieutenant commander when I was trying special courts uh, in DC that I had a talent for being a judge. I'm not sure I had the same talent for becoming a judge the way you typically do in the US. I've had a lot of blessings in my professional life. Two of the, one of the biggest is that I lucked into the two areas where judicial appointment is least political, the military and the administrative law field. So uh, I, I like to think I was good at being a judge and I enjoyed it.
0: Well, by that statement, it sounds like you asked a question that I was thinking about. of How come you didn't think about becoming a judge on a, a criminal judge or a civil judge, you know, in a state or federal court? But it sounds like you've answered that question by that statement.
1: I don't know if I could have gotten convinced the governor to appoint me or a people of a county to elect me, but I could convince the judge advocate general that I had the stuff to be a judge and then the hiring people at Social Security and other agencies. One thing incidentally speaking of other agencies once you're an alj any agency can hire you so this the the rigorous examination process that gets you in the door and different agencies have different attitudes toward hiring aljs the ones that i was lucky enough to go with they had the attitude give us somebody who's good at being a judge and we'll teach that person the substantive law in our field some agencies deal in very technical areas they want people with a background in their specialty, and that's fine for their needs. But some of them love hiring their former staff attorneys, for instance, or even private practitioners who are specialized in their field. But uh, Social Security and the FMC and the DOL all had the attitude, we want to hire good judges and we'll teach them the substantive law in our field.
0: So. We've hit upon uh, Department of Labor for for some workers' comp. The Maritime Agency had a very small one. Uh, My interview a couple weeks ago of Judge Payton and Judge Jackler with immigration. We know Department of Defense has uh, hearings for, like I said, security clearances. What other agencies have ALJs and what do they do? You mentioned uh, HHS with uh, Medicare. What other agencies would, if someone was considering ALJ would they not be thinking of other than those that I just listed?
1: Well, there's NLRB I mentioned, they, they're one of the bigger groups of ALJs. They have around 30, I think, on the list that I saw. But one of the things that you one of the links you can find on that OPM ALJ fact sheet is a list of the agencies that have ALJs. And there are a variety of them. some I never heard of, some I've met socially at, at CLE conferences and I'll we'll chat about what they do and I'm sort of goes right over my head but any agency that's hiring I would recommend just as with any other prospective employer find out what they do most of these agencies other than Social Security which has privacy issues most of them publish all their ALJ decisions on their website you can read them I interviewed with several agencies in addition to the ones that hired me and I would read their decisions so I know what, I have some idea what the, I was talking about in the interview, and uh, I'll get a sense if uh, that was, sounded like the sort of hearing I'd like to preside over and the kind of decision I'd like to be writing. Virtually all ALJs have their work product as a written decision, not a verdict announced from the bench. So, and the ones that do not have privacy issues, publish them on their website.
0: Now, was I, your court the, the court of final decision, or was there appeal process from that?
1: Well, at DOL... There was an internal administrative appeal. You get a three judge panel within the agency, civil service judges like us. And then after that appeal would lie to the, the, uh, federal circuit court for the region. In social security, it's similar. All the, there's an internal appellate review body and their decisions go to the district court. District courts love getting social security appeals I here. Their magistrate judges especially love it, but uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it, virtu- I think that's pretty much going to be the s- conventional situation in any agency you go to. There will be an administrative review. In the case of the Federal Maritime Commission, the the appeal would go to the commissioners themselves. It was a, kind of a standard regulatory situation. There's five commissioners appointed by the president, no more than three of any of the same political party, that kind of thing. So they were the they were the appellate body. But larger agencies like DOL and Social Security, have an administrative appeals judge panel. The, incidentally, I might mention, ALJs are not the only game in town. We're appointed under the APA, Administrative Procedures Act, but the immigration judges who you had on, they are not ALJs, uh, they're not appointed under the Administrative Procedures Act. There are all sorts of miscellaneous administrative adjudicators in the federal government that, that I'd never heard of in many cases, but some are aljs appointed under apa others are not they have different titles i'm not sure what the distinction is It's certainly nobody would argue that the immigration judges do any work that's any less important than what aljs do but for whatever reason i think historical accident is the reason in a lot of cases a lot of these different folks will be will have the similar responsibilities without being apa appointed which means they're not uh, weren't hired through the process that i went through of course, nobody's hired through that process anymore since this Lucia case and the executive order that's now five years old.
0: So, what are some of the uh, obvious things that I'm failing to ask you or failing to draw out of you? I know that you you said you did some uh, the homework and some research, so here's your opportunity to answer questions that I have not asked.
1: Well, the uh, as I said, the the new hiring system is outside my area of experience or expertise, so I've given a couple hints to where people can look to Google it to educate themselves. Well, I, one thing I want to say about judging in both these environments where I've judged is it's important to keep some humility about it. When the APA was originally passed, the title for it was hearing examiner. In the 50s, that was amended to administrative law judge. The title military judge didn't exist until 1967. Before that, there was nobody. It was just the president of the court at a special. And at the GCM, there was somebody called a law officer who was a JAG officer who would be an advisor to the president of the court. president of the court made all the rulings. So I figured Congress went to the trouble of creating these titles, military judge, administrative law judge. They didn't do that to bolster my self-esteem. They did this to push the responsibility on me to behave like a judge. People would on message boards of angry claimants' attorneys and stuff back in the day, <laughs> people would argue about whether social whether ALJs were real judges or not. Well, that's a metaphysical issue I don't really worry myself about. I figure my job is to behave like a real judge and uh, let that hopefully take care of that issue in my hearing room.
0: So you've had uh, a rewarding military career and then a warding, alj career uh, this is probably a loaded question but if you had to do it differently would you have done it
1: i don't think so can't think of anything substantial i would have done differently had a great time in both settings
0: well ken that's all i got this is great info as we try to build a picture of all the alternatives and options that await jags and former jags when they leave the service and uh You know, I'm at that threshold now. I'm under 100 days to my ceremony, and I'm excited about the possibilities that are out there. And uh, it's good to hear from folks like you who have gone through it before. So I appreciate your time. I will include your link to your LinkedIn profile. You've put the caveat up front. Your information may be kind of dated, but if someone wants to get a hold of you, I'm sure that's one way that they could reach out to you as well.
1: I still belong to the professional association of ALJs, so I have some contacts with current ALJs I can put people in touch with. So, yeah, well, they, feel free to put my LinkedIn in the uh, in your notes.
0: Well, thank you, Ken. The opera judge, opera man, the original one, not, uh, not Adam Sandler on Saturday Night Live. This is the original opera man. It is so good to see you. It's so good to catch up with you, and I very much appreciate the time that you've given us today. My pleasure. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.